chapter 2. We're going to begin our reading this morning in verse 1. When you find that text, if you would stand with me as we honor God through the reading of His Word. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul, as he's carried along by the Spirit of Christ, says this. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that as we look at your word and as we examine it together this morning, we pray, Father, that you would speak clearly to us through your spirit, that we might be transformed today as a result of encountering you here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you who know me, Know that uh, I have a, I enjoy Southern gospel music, specifically when I'm doing projects. Cameron knows this. We work on a car together. We do any kind of carpentry kind of thing together. We're breaking out Spotify and we're listening to some Imperials or we're listening to some sort of country gospel kind of music. Well, when I was growing up, we listened to Southern gospel music and it was actually the, the, the name of the radio station. They called themselves Southern Gospitality which tells you a little bit about the kind of music that they played. But, but I, I loved it. I mean, I just kind of grew up on that. One of the songs that I remember, and I remembered it more as kind of a silly song, but it actually came out uh, with the Kingsmen. They were a, a Southern gospel quartet that began in the 1950s era, but they're still, they're still kicking uh, even today. But, uh, I mean, different folks singing in the group, obviously. But, um, but, but anyway, one of the songs that they sang was a song called Excuses. You ever heard this song? Excuses, excuses, you hear them every day. 
the devil, he'll supply them if from church you'll stay away. And, and it goes on. It says, uh, he says, so to keep them folks away from church, he offers them excuses. Well, I, I just want to, I just want you to hear some of these because it's funny. Okay. The, the first, the first verse he goes in the summer, it's too hot. And in the winter, it's too cold. Now, that, wait, before we go on, just think about how many of these you have thought. Okay. And then some of you, think about how many of these you've actually verbalized, okay? Okay. In the summer, it's too hot. And in the winter, it's too cold. In the springtime, when the weather's just right, you'll find some el- somewhere else to go. Well, it's up to the mountains, or it's down to the beach, or to visit some old friend, or to just stay at home and kind of relax and hope that some of the kinfolk drop in. Next one. Well, a headache Sunday morning and a backache Sunday night. By work time Monday morning... You're feeling quite all right. While one of the children has a cold. Pneumonia, do you suppose? While the whole family had to stay home just to blow that poor kid's nose. <laughs> well, the preacher, he's too young. Uh, or maybe he's too old. The sermons, they're not hard enough. Or maybe they're too bold. His voice is much too quiet. Sometimes he gets too loud. He needs to have more dignity or else he's way too proud. Well, we know that the pride thing was my problem earlier today. So, Well, the sermons, they're too long. (laughs) And maybe they're too short. I don't know that anybody's ever complained about that. He ought to preach the word with dignity instead of stomp and snort. Well, that preacher we've got must be the world's most stuck-up man. Well, one of the ladies told me the other day, well, he didn't even shake my hand. Yep. Excuses. He says, excuses, you'll hear them every day. And the devil, he'll supply them. If from church, you'll stay away. Now, now the purpose of the Christian life is, is not just that you'll come to this building as often as we open it for you, right? That's not the whole point of the Christian life. The purpose of the Christian life is that you live a life of faithful obedience to Jesus Christ, which looks like being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, to, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbors, you love yourself, in a way that, that showcases the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that's going to involve a passionate commitment to the local church, right? So it's going to, it's going to involve coming and being a part of what God is doing in among his people on these days where we gather, whether it's Sundays or we spend a good amount of time together, worshiping, praying, studying the word of God together, or maybe even in the middle of the week at a midweek service, coming together to, to not just for yourself, but to encourage others to share in the fellowship and to share in the worship of Christ corporately. Now, when you look at this text here, something stands out, doesn't it? Paul says that we are without excuse, without excuse. Every excuse that we offer up to God for our sin will be burnt up like a leaf that is thrown into the fire. It will just be consumed. We we cannot blame our sin on anyone else. We cannot blame our sin on anything else. We can't blame it on the circumstances that we have. Well, things are just not... 
the best right now, and that's why I've made these decisions, and this is why I've acted in this way, or we can't, we can't blame, blame it on the way that we were brought up, you know? We can't blame it on our parents' affection, how much care they brought into our lives. We can't blame it on our spouse's indifference toward us. We can't blame it on our children's behavior. We can't blame it on an intolerable boss. We can't even blame it on our own personality. We have no excuse for our sins. No excuse will stand before God, but we will all stand before Him without them. So now, remember what Paul is doing in this passage this morning. This section, chapters 1 to chapters 3, is kind of a lengthy section, but Paul is explaining to the church in Rome that everyone is guilty before God. Everyone. Both both Gentiles and Jews. Last week he focused on the Gentile world where he, he began to really hone in on what idolatry is all about, what it looks like and what, 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 a, uh, what kind of illustrations are there for us to see and understand that we have missed it completely in knowing God and in worshiping God. And in this passage here this morning, he focuses in on the Jews. He focuses on the Jews, the people who really thought that they had a privileged place in the work of God, in the, in the whole scheme of things. So from chapter 1 to chapter 3, Paul wants the people to understand that everyone, no matter who you are, no matter your background, no matter your ethnicity, no matter what kind of education you have, no matter who you are, all of us stand before God guilty of sin. And there is no excuse. This is the first principle that I want us to pull out this morning. There are no excuses for our sin. There are no excuses for our sin. Verse 1, look what it says. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So Paul, he begins this section by reminding us of what he's already said in verse 20 of chapter 1. Look back there at verse 20 of chapter 1. He says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So he's saying that the things around us, the things that we see, the things of God that we see, the the created order, leave us in such a state that we ought to recognize that there is a God. That there is a God who is worthy of our devotion. There is a God who is worthy of our worship. And because we do not, instead we worship the created things, we worship ourselves. He says we're without excuse. Remember what he said in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the wrath of God is not just being revealed against the Gentile, which all of us are, but it's also being revealed against those who are Jews and are ungodly. So all people everywhere, all of ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men, All of those who suppress the truth about who God is, God's wrath is being revealed to deal with this. So remember, the righteousness of God, remember in in verse 17, 
chapter 1. The righteousness of God is revealed by what? Faith. Faith? Yes, just nod. So I know you're with me. The righteousness of God is revealed by faith. What does that mean? Not necessarily the, you know, hopscotch of faith that's going around in your evangelism process, but in totality. It's revealed through faith, through a life of faith. But then the wrath of God is revealed by lack of faith, by ungodliness, by by wickedness. So God's righteousness, his goodness is showcased by the repentant, obedient, faith-filled response of his people. God's judgment, on the opposite hand, his wrath is showcased by the rebellion, the disobedient, faithless response of people. So in this first section, Paul focused upon, in the first section that we looked at last week, Paul focused upon the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. Today, he focuses in on the Jews. Because, I mean, let's be honest, reading this text uh, from last week, I mean, the, the Jews who were probably hearing this were just like, you get them, Paul. You get those Jews. Amen. Hallelujah. That's what he's, they're thinking. Because they're thinking, this is all the stuff we've already thought about those Gentiles, those idol worshipers, those folks. They need a good lesson in what it means to be a a godly person. And so now he comes to this section and he lays it to them. He takes it to the Jews. Now he's, he's focusing on the Jews that have taken the high moral road. The ones who have identified themselves as being Jews. The ones who have, have looked at others around this world with disdain. The key verse in this whole section is verse 11. It's really short. For God shows no partiality. He doesn't look at the Gentiles as being really different from the Jews. All of the people in the world are under God's judgment because they have sinned. God doesn't look at some people as being less guilty than other people. They're guilty. They're guilty. They've broken the law whether they know the law or not. God has written the law. We'll find that out here in just a little while. But God has written the law on their hearts. So they've broken their conscience. They've broken the law that God has put upon their hearts. Or they've broken the law that he's put upon stones. Either way, every single person on the planet has sinned against God. James says it like this. He says, whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. So, you know, if you were a Jew and, you know, you just, you did really well with the whole thing. I mean, you were, you were just spot on with obeying the law. But, you know, you just really had a hankering one day for, you know, cooking a goat, a kid, in its mother's milk. And you just, man, it just tastes so good. I need to have some of that in my life. And you do that. James says, look, you broke one point of the law. You boiled that kid in its mother's milk. It's just like you've broken the whole thing. You see? He's saying that the smallest infraction, the smallest little crack in breaking the law of God means that you've broken the whole thing. You're responsible for the entire thing. Why? Because God's not looking for someone who just does 51% better than everybody else. It's perfection. Absolute perfection, 100% obedience. No one's doing that. So the things that Paul is saying about the Gentiles are ringing true for for the Jews as well. They should have seen the divine power. I mean, for heaven's sakes, you read about the story at Sinai, 
They saw something that most people have never seen. The fire of God consuming the top of a mountain. They should have understood his attributes that were evident in creation and even the attributes that he had shared with them about who he was. They had special knowledge. They had something that no one else on the planet had. They were the ones to whom the prophets came. They were the ones who had the writings. They were the ones who, who received the oracles of God. They were the ones who had a covenant. And they had a law. They knew exactly what it is that God wanted from them. They were the ones who understood God as sovereign creator of heaven and earth. They were the ones who had a temple in Jerusalem. But even they were unable to fulfill his requirement. They were not able to fully obey him. But having all of these things about them, this covenant, the law, they looked at the world outside themselves with great disdain. In fact, they would, they would call Gentiles dogs, which would be a fairly dirty name to call somebody at that time. They looked at the world outside the covenant and they, they looked at it with disdain, down their noses. They looked at the peoples, the Romans, uh, really anyone standing outside the Jewish circle as being barbarians, doing the things that they ought not do. Paul says... You people, you think you can rest in your ethnicity? You think you can rest in your position? You are wrong. You're wrong. Because when you look at those around you and think about how horribly sinful or wicked they are because they do this or they do that, he says that that same condemnation that you're using, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, it's the same condemnation that rests upon you because you're a lawbreaker too. So what does that look like for us? It's very easy to look at at the people outside church community um, and have a, a measured amount of disgust about the things that people do. I mean, you look at the world right now. We we look at people that are human traffickers. And in your mind, automatically, there's a certain anger and a certain frustration and a certain disgust about people who would sell other human beings. Drug dealers affecting so many lives, destroying them, throwing them into, into pits where they cannot get out of addiction, drug use, rapists, murderers, child molesters, radical Muslims, or even that, that self-focused business type. You know, the one that wears a Rolex and drives a Mercedes and doesn't have time to talk with anybody else who isn't driving Mercedes or wearing a Rolex. And we think, well, you know, look at all that. I guess I'm not as bad as all those folks. At least we try to live moral lives. This was the problem with theological liberalism. Christian liberalism attempted to separate the supernatural claims of the Bible from Christian life. And so what liberalism would say, is the, the Bible is filled with errors, filled with contradictions all over the place. So you, you, you can take what you want from it, but you don't have to take the whole thing. You can leave out the things that you disagree with. And so they would say things like, Jesus really wasn't divine. He was just a really great teacher. He's an incredibly moral teacher. He's so wise. 
so thoughtful in the way that he would express these things. And so he's an example for us to follow, to be like. Or they would say things like, Jesus didn't really die on the cross for anybody, really. He wasn't like a sacrifice. He wasn't like a substitute. He didn't take, he didn't take sin upon himself. He was, he was really about living out a life of humility and love under this oppressive system in the world. So theological liberalism in the 1940s began to kind of take root in the United States. And instead of preaching a gospel that was centered on a crucified God-man, it focused upon looking to Jesus as an example to live out a life that was morally right. So it left us with a morally arrogant kind of Christianity that was completely emaciated with any kind of gospel power. And in the end, no one really wanted to talk about sin. No one really wanted to talk about repentance. All we really wanted to talk about was how if you came to Jesus, he would make your life better. If you came to Jesus, then things would get better in your life. You would have character qualities that would, that would strengthen you as a person. Uh, you would have more integrity. I mean, you'd have networks of people that were able to help you and you could get by in life. You could get a better job, more well-paying job. Liberalism left us with a veggie tale kind of Christianity. Focused completely on moralism. Just being the right kind of person. Jesus said something about this. Matthew chapter 21, he says, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you do. Why? Because the Pharisees really believed that they were better than everybody else. They really thought that that it was their morality that God would look at and he would say, you know what, that's great, good job. You know, pat you on the back. Go go ahead and do the things you need to do. But these tax collectors, these sinners, these people that were prostitutes, God would look at disdain at these people. The problem is they didn't understand God. They didn't understand what grace was about. They didn't understand what mercy was about. They didn't understand that they were the problem themselves. That God responds to those who come to him in repentance and faith. So for us, as a result of moralism, moralism became our new law as Western people, Christians living in America. We became like Pharisees. We, we look at the people around us with disdain. As if somehow we're more right in God's sight because we don't drink or we don't smoke. We're somehow more right in God's sight than the people that are prostitutes downtown, than the guy who's homeless and an alcoholic downtown, than the guys in prison because of pedophilia or murder or something like that. That somehow in our own morality, we are better than them. As though God is happier with us because of our moralness than he is with them. But that's simply not the case. Paul says that the judgment that we heap up upon them, when we look down our nose is thinking that we're better because we haven't done this or haven't done that, or at least we're not doing this. Don't you think you sound like the Pharisee who said, thank you, God, that I'm not like that person over there. That same judgment is the judgment that will be placed upon you. 
because we're just as guilty as anyone else of breaking God's law. There is no excuse for our sin. Secondly, God's judgment is always right. Look what he says there in verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So now Paul talks about the rightness of God's judgment. But he doesn't just yell at the Romans. He doesn't just point and yell. He, he identifies with them. He says, I know that you know. We know that these things are right. He, he, he's using this, oh man, this you kind of, <coughs> kind of word to, to use it as a rhetorical device. He wants them to see the problems with what people have said and what they themselves have said. He's saying, why do you think that you will escape God's justice And others will not if you have the same kind of evil living inside you. Why do you think that's true? Everyone is guilty before God. That's Paul's point. All of us are guilty before God. Not just the people you think are not good. Not just the people that don't act like you. Not just the people who look different than you. Or have made different kinds of mistakes than you have made. Or in our estimations, larger mistakes than we have made. Everyone. Do you think that God is too nice to send nice people to hell? I can tell you how many times I've asked someone why they think that God should let them into his heaven. They respond with something like, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. You know, I've, uh, I try to do the right things, you know. I try to, I try to take care of other people, you know. I, um, my favorite is, well, I've never killed anyone. That's the bar. This is a presumption. It's a presumption upon God. I live a good life, and so God is, is okay with me. God is going to bless me. The things in my life are going together pretty well right now. God is being patient with you. But his kindness is not something to be enjoyed while at the same time we ignore the son. God's blessing, his kindness to you is meant to lead you to repentance. But the truth is that our stubbornness to worship at the feet of our idols or our stubbornness to suppress the truth of God is storing up God's wrath for us on that final day. So when it comes to our sin, God is very patient with us. I mean, he he could have squashed all of us the day we were born. He could have removed us a long time ago, but he is patient and long-suffering. Many of us here this morning have experienced repentance and placed our faith in Jesus Christ and been saved from the wrath of God. But some have not. Here this morning, some have not. There are no excuses for our sin. And God's judgment is always right. Lastly, look 
you will receive what you deserve. You will receive what you deserve. Look at verse 6. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be a tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Paul says that God is going to give every single person what they deserve. To those who who do well, glory, honor, immortality. To those who promote themselves and disobey God, wrath and fury. So when we look at this, what does it mean? Are we just kind of chucking the gospel out the window? Is that what Paul's doing? You, uh, you just have to work hard at being good. Work hard at being obedient. Work hard. And somehow, at the very end of all of it, if you do enough good things, God's just going to reward you with eternal life. Is that what Paul is saying? No. Because if we separate what Paul is saying in this verse from what he's saying in chapter 1 and what he's saying at large in the entire book of Romans, well, it could be very confusing to try and understand what Paul is saying. Now, even though Paul focuses in on obedience and even these concrete acts of a lifestyle that is pleasing to God, we have to remember that God doesn't work like a primary poll. It's not just if you get 51% right. It's all or nothing. Remember? It's either 100% perfection or 99% and you're in hell. God expects absolute obedience, perfection. So this obedience that Paul is talking about, how does it happen? Obedience only happens through faith. It is a product of faith. One of my favorite quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who was martyred at the end of World War II, He wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship where he walks through the Sermon on the Mount for you and and, and talks about what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is what he says. He says, only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. For faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. You see what he's saying? He's saying you can't have faith and be disobedient. You can't have faith and not do the things that faith requires. And you can't be obedient without faith because the heart is not involved. Both faith and obedience are intimately, inextricably tied together in this walk of discipleship. So it's helpful for us to understand what Paul is talking about here. Paul says in in this section, in this last portion, what he says in chapter 1 really helps us make sense of this. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
to faith or faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So living a life that is patient and well-doing only comes through faith. Only happens through faith. Not through grit and determination. Not by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and doing what you got to do in order to make God happy. No. A life of patient well-doing only comes through faith. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, for there is no distinction. All people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look back what he says in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So the wrath of God comes upon the Jew first. And then the Greek. But the salvation of God, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, the salvation of God through the power of the gospel comes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. This is why Paul says in chapter 3, this so awesome, these words are so awesome. He says in, in verse 21 of chapter 3, the righteousness, remember, we're talking about the righteousness of God, has been manifested, it has been revealed. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Because there is no distinction for everyone. All people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of these people are being justified by His grace as a gift. Not according to their own works. It's through the gracious gift of God, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. How do they experience this? To be received by faith. So, God will give us what we deserve. You don't ever have to worry about God not giving you what you deserve. If you want to live a life that is all about you, a life that is suppressing the truth about who God is, a life that is exalting you as being the one who is king or queen in your life, a life that is filled with sin, hidden sin, open sin, disobedience, a life that is moral, but lacking gospel, friends, you will get what you deserve. But if you by faith trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you repent of your sins and turn to God and ask for mercy, He will not give you what you deserve. Because He's already given that to someone else. Paul says, for our sake God made Jesus to be sin." even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when God saves you, he doesn't give you what you deserve. He doesn't give you what you deserve. He gives you what Jesus deserves. He gives you life. He gives you promises. He gives you joy unspeakable and full of glory. The other day on campus... I passed Don Whitney, the author of the book that we're reading in small groups. And uh, we greeted one another, said hello. And then as we were just kind of passing, I, I asked him. I said, are you doing well? And he looked at me 
very quickly. And he said, oh yeah, much better than I deserve. And I thought, isn't that true? Isn't that true? Let's pray. Father, we pray today that you would help us to see the critical situation that we find ourselves in apart from Christ. That we wouldn't forget even though we have been saved by your grace, we've been given new life in Jesus Christ, even though these things are true for many of us, Lord, the gospel can ring very hollow unless we remember what it is that we've been saved from. God, help us as your people to look at the world around us, not as not separating them into a them category, but recognizing that we are all human beings bearing the marks of being created in your image, and that everyone is the same and that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in need of Christ. No matter the the quantity of our sins, no matter the quality of our sins, we all need Christ. So Father, let us not be people who judge those around us in a way that is disdaining them, thinking that we are better than them. But let us be a people who look to those who are without Christ, looking at those with, with love and with care, with the desire to see them repent and believe and be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, for those who are here this morning who have heard these words, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would not let them rest. You would not let them simply move on to other things until they wrestle with these truths that the many excuses that they offer up to you, they will be destroyed. And that they are accountable for their sin. And that you will give them what they deserve in the very end. But God, grant them repentance and faith. Help them to see Jesus. Help them to respond and trust in what Christ has done. God, we love you. We thank you today for your, your good word. We pray that you would use this word in our hearts this week. We pray it in Jesus' name.